Well, I wish you a good morning as well. I wish you a happy Father's Day as well. Um, I'm the Matt that Tyler was referring to earlier in his presentation. And uh, I just found myself being really thankful during that presentation about uh, what's ahead for the youth. That the one we call master and Lord and teacher, the one who died for our sins, the great and awesome God of the universe, is also the one who said to his disciples, come and have breakfast. Um, that really speaks to me in the grace and the condescension of the Lord Jesus to meet us at our, our deepest level of need. And um, everyone loves breakfast. And uh, we love the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to find Luke chapter 7, if you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, Luke 7. Uh, we'll also have the words up here um, on the front screen that we're going to read this morning. We'll be in verses 1 through 10 of Luke 7. If you're just jumping in with us today, um, we're in the Gospel of Luke right now. We're going through the Gospel of Luke as a church. The theme of the Gospel of Luke is the kingdom of God. And we hear that phrase, kingdom of God, and we say, what does that mean? Even if you've been in church for a long time, there's still a pause there to try to decide what exactly does the phrase kingdom of God mean? mean. Very simply, the kingdom of God is that realm in which God is reigning. That's what a kingdom is. A kingdom is a realm in which someone is reigning, and the kingdom of God is the realm in which God is reigning. So, we can understand by looking at the scriptures that the kingdom of God had a past manifestation on earth. Something that's already happened that's not here anymore. When Jesus Christ was on the earth, he was the manifestation of the kingdom of God. He was the realm in which God was reigning in his person. That's in the past. In the present, you, Christian, are the manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. You are the realm in which God is reigning. The Holy Spirit indwelling you, God reigning in your heart, you are the present manifestation of the kingdom of God. So it's past, it's present, it's also future. The kingdom of God will be present on earth in all of its fullness when Christ returns. In his reigning. The present manifestation is an imperfect one because I'm imperfect and I represent the kingdom imperfectly, just like you. That future manifestation will be a perfect manifestation of the kingdom of God. But in the present, we're here, we're at church, we've got our Bible open because we're learning how to more accurately reflect the kingdom of God today. You and me, walking around as Christ walked the earth. What does it mean to be a faithful represent, representative of the kingdom of God? And the goal and the hope is that being part of a church will be a formative thing for us. That being here together with the Bible open, listening to the word, will be formative week by week that we will be conformed to a more faithful 
representative of the kingdom of God. And so here we are. We're making our way through the gospel of Luke. We've been in chapter 6 where Jesus lays down the foundational principles of the kingdom. A condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6. Okay? The kingdom perspective on self. The kingdom perspective on others. The kingdom perspective on Jesus. We broke it down into those three categories. Self and others and Jesus. And now here we are today, beginning chapter 7. What are we going to find in chapter 7? Here's the way that we can get a handle, big picture on chapter 7, okay? Four encounters. Jesus is going to encounter four individuals. The outsider. That's today. How is he going to respond to the one who's on the outside? Next, he's going to encounter the one who's grieving a very personal and important loss. Who will Jesus be to the one who is grieving? Then, he's going to encounter the one with questions. Someone who has questions bordering on on doubt related to Jesus and his person. And who will Jesus be to the one who's questioning him? And finally, he's going to meet someone who's full of sins. Someone who really is defined by their sins. And who will Jesus be to the sinful person? Those are the four encounters that we're going to look at in chapter 7. That's what the lay of the land looks like for the next four weeks, beginning today with um, this man that we're calling the outsider. Okay, let's read about him, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll see what there is to learn about the kingdom of God from this encounter today. All right, that's what's before us today. If you're able to stand this morning for the reading of the word, I want to invite you to stand for those willing and able um, out of love and reverence uh, for God's word and for God himself. Luke 7, beginning in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, what what sayings is Luke talking about? Well, the ones that we just read, chapter 6, how we spent our time weeks back. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. 
and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What a wonderful encounter, Father. Teach us everything that you want us to know today. And I, I pray for a great multiplication of my very um, small offering this morning in this sermon, that you would be pleased to just take it and break it and multiply it out and feed people um, as only you can do um, enough to satisfy with more leftover. We ask that this would be done for Jesus' glory. We ask in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, whatever we do this morning, we don't want to obscure the main point. Okay, so let's do that first. What is the main point? Let's not let it get lost. This passage demonstrates that Jesus is absolutely trustworthy. And his mere word is sufficient. The main point, at least the main theological point presented to us here is that Jesus Christ is absolutely trustworthy and that his mere word is sufficient for us to place our trust in. This man, this centurion who we're calling this morning the outsider did not require the physical presence of Jesus even though it was available to him. He was willing to rely on his mere word and his trust in Jesus proved to be well placed. Jesus showed himself to be absolutely trustworthy. His word could be depended on. Now, we normally don't get into practical application this early in a sermon. Usually it's, you know, halfway through, toward the end, scattered around. Typically we don't do it right away. We're going to do it right away. We want to recognize and do some practical application because we have so much in common with this centurion. Think about what we have in common with him. We don't have Jesus' physical presence with us. We are in the position of needing to rely completely on his mere word. Same thing. He's not present with us physically. We are in the position of those who have to rely on his mere word, on the mere word of Christ. We rely solely on the word, the promises of Christ. Promises like, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. We can't see him. His promise, his word of promise is, I am with you. Promises like, I will come again and take you to myself. John 14. 
What do we have? We have the word of Christ that says, I will come again. We rely on words like, I will raise him up on the last day. John 6. The word of Christ that we can really die a real physical death and really be raised again in our very body. There's nothing around us that tells us that would be true. We're simply relying on his mere word that it is true. We're relying on promises like, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's the word of Christ about his provision. We rely on that word. Promises like, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. John 14. We're relying on the word of Christ. And it's really hard for us. And we imagine that if we could actually see Jesus, if his physical presence was actually here with us, we imagine that it would be easier for us to trust him and trust in his word if he were actually here. What we want to do is be able to see him and, and, and then we could trust him. But we don't have the physical presence of Christ. What we have is the word of Christ. And what the centurion shows us is that the word of Christ is no poor substitute for the presence of Christ. The word of Christ is no poor substitute for his presence. Not in terms of sufficiency. Not in terms of trustworthiness. And so I want to ask you today, what word of Christ are you leaning into? What word of Christ are you having to lean into and trust in? I want to encourage you that word of Christ that you are leaning into and trusting in, even though you can't see him, it is fully trustworthy. Your confidence is well placed. He will not let you down. Believe it. The centurion saw that it was so, and you will see that it is so. Again, the main point, at least the main theological point, is that Jesus is absolutely trustworthy, that his word is sufficient for us to trust in. When you see those verses written in your home that you've written out or on a picture, see that word and think, fully trustworthy. I don't see Jesus, but this is his word, and I can trust it. Okay? Now, that's not a surprise. We've been hearing that if you've been around church for a long time, you've been hearing that since you were a, li a little guy or a little gal in Sunday school. Not a surprise. What is a surprise is the person who teaches us this lesson. That, the, that a, a faith of this quality should be demonstrated to us and taught to us by an outsider. This man is a Roman. He's, he's a Gentile. This centurion, this man we're reading about, he's not a Jew. He's not a member of the, the nation of Israel. He's not a member of God's covenant people. In fact, his people, the centurion's people, are considered enemies of God's covenant people. 
And the the force of the surprise comes through in Jesus' words at verse 9, that after hearing these things, he turned... He, he turned and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Notice where this account is in Luke's gospel. Look back to what we just learned about and read through. What have we just seen? Well, we've just seen Jesus lay out the foundational principles of his kingdom, right? We reviewed that already. Principles related to self and related to how we treat others and related to our view of Jesus. He, he's shown us this is what life in the kingdom looks like. That's chapter six. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. This is how you view yourself. This is how you view others. This is how you view Jesus. That's what he's just been talking about. And now at 7-1, after he had finished all these sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum and then this happens. This man, immediately there's this centurion right after the sermon, and he is the perfect example of what life looks like in the kingdom of God. Look at what we're told about him. Look at what he displays in his life and how he displays everything we just read about in chapter 6. First of all, he has a high view of the lowly. Look how he thinks about his servant. This is verse 2. He had a, a servant, someone way below him. He had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. This guy is high up. And this servant who's way under him is highly valued by him. So highly valued that he goes to great pains and probably great humiliation to work for the servant's good. He has a high view of the lowly. Secondly, he loves his enemies. Look at verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. The Jewish people hate the Romans. And here's a Roman who loves the Jewish nation. From this man's perspective, the Jews are his enemies. He loves them. He has a high view of the lowly. He loves his enemies. Third, he does good to those who hate him. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 6, verse 27. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. What has this man done for the people that, that hate them? Well, he's the one who built us our synagogue. That's amazing. He does good to those who hate him. He built them their synagogue. That's verse 5. And if that weren't enough, moving on, he has a high view of Jesus. Verses 7 and 8. When he heard about Jesus, he sent to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But just say the word. What a, what a high, high view of Jesus. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
He has a high view of the lowly. He loves his enemies. He does good to those who hate him. He has this high view of Jesus, and he has this low view of himself. He's he's big time. And he's the one who says, I am not worthy. I am not worthy to have this Jewish rabbi come under my roof. Look at his life. Look at who this man is. Right after the sermon, here's this centurion who calls Jesus Lord, and he does what Jesus says to do. Remember, we looked at that passage a few weeks ago. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And here's this man who's doing it all. Where did this man come from? How did he get like this? He's an outsider. How can it possibly be that someone who is outside of Israel can be living this way and treating Jesus like this? We don't know. I don't know how he got this way. That's why he's a marvel. That's why Jesus stops and marvels at him. That's all he can do. He marvels. That's all that we can do. We just marvel. I don't know how he got this way. He's a perfect illustration of the sermon. And... He is the beginning of a very interesting and informative trend in the Gospel of Luke. A trend where it is the outsider who is commendable. We're going to see this time and time again, and this is the first time, where it's the outsider who's commended. Not the Jewish people, but the outsider. At the end of chapter 7, it's going to be the commendable prostitute. Her faith is commended and not the Pharisee who's sitting next to her. It's the commendable prostitute. In chapter 10, it's going to be the commendable Samaritan. Can you imagine the Samaritan getting the commendation from Jesus? Also known as the good Samaritan. Not the holy people, but the outsider. And then in chapter 19, the commendable tax collector. As if all those things weren't enough, it's the hated outsider tax collector whose house Jesus chooses to dine at and who becomes the great example of faith and works, this man named Zacchaeus. All of them outsiders. The prostitute, the Samaritan, the tax collector, and here the centurion who are the paragons of faith and faithfulness. It begins here with a centurion, this marvelous outsider who shows us the way and who helps us today. Like, I look at this and say, that's what I want my life to be like. This guy's teaching me today about what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom and what it means to trust in the mere word of Christ. Like, that that could be just as good as his presence. Like, I'm not worthy, Jesus, to have you here in my house, but, but say the word. I wish my heart were a little bit more like that. So he's teaching me, all right? Okay, we got the main point. We also have the surprising point. 
Finally, two things more, two things that we um, learn about the kingdom of God here by noticing this whole encounter, okay? So we're pulling a strand from here, we're pulling a strand from here. Now we're looking at the big picture and saying, okay, what do we do with all this? What can we take away? What can we put into practice after observing this encounter? And we'll, we'll just limit ourselves to these two things and then we'll be done. The first thing is something to understand regarding the composition of the kingdom of God. Something to understand about who makes up the kingdom of God. And here it is. This kingdom of God we're talking about is composed entirely of outsiders. We're all outsiders in this kingdom. We survey the landscape of humanity that we see around us every day. And we evaluate people and we decide that certain people are closer to God than others based on the morality on display in their life or their country of origin or how well they fit into my culture. That this person is closer to God than that person. And we put people in these categories and we say these people have an inside track to God and these people are really, really far from God. And the Jews in those days would have thought we have the inside track on God. We're getting it right. The Gentiles out there, they're really bad. They're really wrong. They're far from God. We Jews are close or at least closer and Jesus comes along and he blows up that whole paradigm. That there's an inside track to God and then there's those who are on the outside and he completely blows that up by saying, you, the Gentile, your faith is superior to any that I have found in the whole nation of Israel. See, that's an explosion. That's a huge explosion. And you, prostitute, worshiping at my feet, Your sins are forgiven. Your faith is commendable. As for you, Pharisee, the supposed religious leader of Israel, I have nothing to say to you. That's a huge explosion. Jesus knew something that we have to learn, that there are no insiders in the kingdom of God. We are all outsiders because we're humans. We've all been outsiders since the garden. We were all expelled in Adam and Eve because of our sin. We're all sent away from God's presence. We're all outside. There's no one left inside except Jesus alone. He alone is the perfect one, the righteous one, the insider. And as for the rest of us, we are all on the outside. And we have to to develop and maintain that mindset of an outsider to the grace of God. Why do we have to develop the mindset of an outsider? Well, first of all, it's the only accurate view of yourself. Develop that mindset because it's true. Secondly, the longer you've been part of a church, the easier it is to view yourself as an insider. You've been part of a church for 
15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. Oh, yeah, I, I know my way around this place. I'm, I'm an insider, and we develop that insider mindset that this is us. We've got the inside track. All those people out there are outsiders. And the more you view yourself as an insider, the harder it is to see and care for the outsider. That's just something to understand about the composition of the kingdom of God. I'm an outsider to this kingdom. You're an outsider to this kingdom. We've only been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there's something to understand. There's also something to do, okay? Something to understand regarding the composition of the kingdom of God, and there's something to do related to the growth and the expansion of the kingdom of God. Here's the thing to do and how we need to train our minds and our eyes. As you walk around this week and interact with people, learn to see the obvious outsider. And share the gospel of Jesus with the obvious outsider. You may have heard this before. You may have said this before. I've probably said it before. I don't remember, but I know I've heard it said many times. To hear a Christian, to hear someone say something like, you know, um, oh, you know, so-and-so, they're such a good person. You know, like, wouldn't they make a great Christian. They're so close. Like, they live such a good life. And it's, it's almost like, yeah, they're just like that far away from being a Christian. All they have to do is add this little element of belief to their already good life, and then they would, they would be there. And wouldn't that be wonderful? They'd make, they'd make such a good Christian because they're already like this. Well, the ugly flip side to that is that we look at other people who are not so godly in their behavior. And we think, you know, they're so far from God, I could go share the gospel with them. They would never believe it because look at who they are. And my next door neighbor, that they're pretty good. Yeah, they've got a really good chance to believe. And this person over here who looks to, like they're, you know, really struggling and really far from God, I'm not even going to bother because... They're not going to believe. You know, the addict, the foreigner, the prostitute, the person who doesn't look like you, the person who's not from the same country as you, that they're less likely to want Jesus or trust Jesus or represent Jesus well. So we just leave them to the side. And so we continue to see obvious outsiders as outsiders and become content with just leaving them on the outside. And we forget that we ourselves are outsiders. And we forget this as well, that when we read the gospel accounts, do you remember who were the first people to respond and the people that desire Jesus' presence? It's the outsiders the poor, the sinful, the ashamed, the social outcasts, 
They're the ones that believe and want to be with him. It's the good people. It's the the upright people who don't believe and resist him. And it's these outcasts and outsiders who become the paragons of faith and faithfulness. So in light of that, as you go, here's the mind change, here's the behavior change, this is where the text collides with life. As you go, be looking for the obvious outsider and don't be afraid. In light of what we have seen today, understand that Jesus gives his time to the outsider that he cares for the outsider and he gives the outsider exactly what he needs. That's how the word shapes us today. That's how we're being formed today. That our eyes are seeing the outsider and our hearts are moved with love for the outsider. And because of that, we speak to them the gospel of Jesus Remembering that the outsiders in the gospel accounts were the most eager to respond. Remember that. You say, well, what do I tell them? Go to them and tell them everything that the Lord Jesus has done for you. How he forgave you of all of your sins and how he will do that for them too when they put their trust in his name. And if you are listening today and you know that you are far from God, because of your sin and you think you are so far outside of his love and so far gone in behavior or sins or whatever understand today what we've seen from Jesus that he loves the outsider that he is so eager to help you and just understand one thing more that we like to look at things out in the natural world that we marvel at, and we marvel at the stars in the sky, and we marvel at the mountains, and we marvel at the lakes, and we marvel at the sunsets. Do you know what makes God marvel? One person who does not need to see him, but believes the word that he has spoken. And so I just put that before you today that what some people might call simplistic faith or blind faith, Jesus calls marvelous to see someone not need to see him, but simply place their faith in what he has spoken. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, said the Lord Jesus, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And so will it be for you. Amen. Father, I I pray that as we go, that what we've seen today would, um, would hold. And that we wouldn't forget the most important things. That we can absolutely rely on your word. Even though we don't see you, we can trust you. And that your heart for the outsider has revealed that we can and should go and do likewise and be so eager to share, especially with those who we would not naturally share with. Help us, Lord. These things are not easy for us, but we rely on your grace because we want to be obedient because we love you. We love you so much and pray in Jesus name. Amen.